This episode contains audio and descriptions depicting violence, as well as some harsh language. Please take care when listening. In the spring of 1993, Michelle Rausch was a journalism student at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, about 100 miles north of Waco. Waco was attracting worldwide attention with the standoff with our federal government. Still no break reported tonight outside of Waco. Cult leader David Koresh apparently remains holed up in his heavily armed... It was on the evening news every single night. I remember watching the live updates that the FBI and ATF had every night. They advised that they are still in a standoff situation at Mount Carmel. The bulk of information that was coming out was just these spoon-fed news conferences. And as a budding journalist, I wanted to know more. What was going on down there? Michelle and a friend who was a photographer decided to make the 90-minute drive down to Waco. She drove and we were kind of driving around and I had no idea what I was going to find. I just was there and I knew I would find my story when I saw it. It was a desolate road. There was nothing out there. And literally in the middle of nowhere, I see a car with these two large signs propped up. What is the mark of a beast? And then the other one said, what do Seventh-day Adventists really believe? I said, stop the car, my story's on this hill. Spectators and onlookers had flocked to Waco from all over the country. But because of the roadblocks, they couldn't get anywhere near the compound. So a lot of them ended up on this hill, about five miles away. You're next! You're next! It was a place for fanatics. Wake up and understand! You're next! And also a place for merchandise. For people trying to make a quick buck off the standoff. And there was a tent with a woman and her husband selling t-shirts. And then a gentleman sitting by himself on the hood of his car with anti-government, anti-gun control bumper stickers. One of them said, fear the government who fears your gun. Someone with a camera interviewed this man about the stickers. Somebody told me a lot of people would be scared to put something on the, you know, like this. And I thought, jackpot. This man was sitting on the hood of his car in a red plaid shirt and a camouflage ball cap. He was soft-spoken, unassuming. And as Michelle scribbled his story into a notebook, she realized he was different. He came to this event from New York, drove down from Buffalo, New York to Waco, Texas. He was there because he was angry about the government storming the compound. He did not think that was right. He really thought the government was too involved in our lives, the lives of everyday American citizens. He was fascinating because I just couldn't understand how we both could grow up in America and have a completely different perception of the government. He said something to the effect that we need to watch the government and heed any warning signs. I don't know what that means, heed warning signs. What He's going to warn the government or send a message? I don't know. While Michelle finished the interview, her friend snapped a photograph of her talking to this young man. A man whose face, just two years later, would be on every newspaper and television on the planet. A man whose name would become notorious. 
It was a name Michelle scratched on her notepad before moving on to her next interview. Tim McVeigh. We've had 35 to 40 mile an hour winds, and this, this fire is, is racing out of control. Black smoke. A few weeks after that, on April 19, 1993, Michelle was back on campus watching the news coverage as the Branch Davidian compound caught fire. So I sat down and I, I just watched it and really was stunned that that was how that was coming to an end. I just couldn't believe that it was ending that way. It was it, stunning, really, was the word. At that same moment, hundreds of miles to the north, standing in the parlor of a rundown farmhouse, Timothy McVeigh watched Waco burn, too. There are 95 people inside, of them 17 below the age of 10. What he saw was an atrocity carried out by a tyrannical government, hell-bent on seizing everyone's guns. And as tears ran down his face, he vowed to take revenge. From Longlead and Campside Media, this is Long Shadow, Rise of the American Far Right. I'm Garrett Graff. Episode 3, Sick Semper Tyrannus. It's two years to the day from the burning of the Branch Davidian compound at Waco, April 19th, 1995. It's just before 9 a.m. in an office right across from the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. The Oklahoma Water Resources Board is settling in for its morning meeting. Someone pushes record on a tape recorder. Uh, there are four elements that I have to uh, uh, receive information regarding. A massive explosion rocks the boardroom, shattering glass and throwing members to the ground. Confused and injured, the workers make their way out of the office and down the stairs to evacuate. Everybody, let's get out of here. Outside, an apocalyptic scene. The building across the street, the nine-story Murrah Federal Building, has been ripped in half. A news chopper circles overhead, getting the first images of the aftermath. It looks like part of the building has been blown away. We'll have to bank around the other side so I can get a better view of it. Wow. Look at that shot. It's absolutely incredible. About a third of the building has been blown away. Uh, this is just devastating. On April 19th, 1995, I was at home fixing coffee, getting ready to do some work on a particular story I was working on, and I got a call from my editor in Washington, D.C. This is Mark Potok who you might remember from our first episode. He covered the siege at Waco for USA Today from beginning to end, and now he was about to get another assignment from his editor. There had been a big explosion in Oklahoma City, and it looked like a lot of people were probably hurt. It could easily have been a propane gas explosion. We had no idea at the time. It was a big story, though. Potok ran to the airport and got on the day's last flight to Oklahoma City. Another journalist on the plane had a cell phone and was keeping up with what was happening on the ground. We had some idea what was going on. It looked like a bomb. Enormous destruction had resulted. 
there were probably scores of people dead. When I first got down to the Oklahoma City Federal Building, the building, of course, had the huge caved-in front, but there were probably 40 cars around it and parking lots still on fire. You could smell the burning oil. The sky was full of flames. There was dust in the air still from the explosion. There were police cars and ambulances absolutely everywhere. There were people walking around absolutely shell-shocked. All my friends are missing. I don't know where any of them are. It hurts deep down as to why someone would do something of this, of this magnitude. The Murrah building had housed many federal agencies like the ATF. But the second floor, which had been completely destroyed, also housed a daycare center. You could see people who had children in the building just losing their minds, right? Trying to figure out what was happening, where their children were, had they survived. But there were these terrible scenes of firefighters and others carrying dead children out and lying them on the pavement. Uh, we pulled probably six dead babies out and a couple of dead women. It's the most devastating thing I've ever seen in my life. It was just an unbelievable disaster. It was like Armageddon. As Mark ran up to the building, he was surprised to see familiar faces. I see a series of officials who I knew from the Waco siege. At that point, it did occur to me, my God, this is the anniversary. This very likely had something to do with Waco. All of a sudden, a shout went up from where I couldn't really tell, but it was, get back. Get him back! Get him back! Federal officials had just discovered what looked like a second bomb inside the wreckage, and it was pandemonium. So we're all turned around and everybody's running away. I remember I was running beside a cameraman from one of the networks. This guy's running at full speed, carrying a $40,000 camera on his shoulder and goes crashing over and you know, watching the camera splinter into pieces. As it turned out, there wasn't a second bomb. It was in fact a dummy bomb that was used by an ATF office in that building as a training device. One of the rescuers had run across this and it had caused a huge freak out. In the hours and days that followed the Oklahoma City bombing, rescue workers sifted through the rubble looking for survivors. But this is gonna be a process that could take several days. They're already bringing in generators, bringing in lights. It's unbelievable. You know, everywhere, you, everywhere you dig, you find somebody. Everywhere. The casualties quickly began to mount. At least 18 people have been killed. Center reporting that of the 80 people uh, found, two of them were found alive. So The indication that you're getting is at least another 100 people dead in that building. The final death toll would be 168 people, with more than 700 wounded. At the time, it was the worst terror attack ever carried out on U.S. soil. As rescue workers continued to find bodies, federal officials had another concern. Finding the perpetrators as soon as possible. The bombing in Oklahoma City 
was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. In the first hours after the attack, President Bill Clinton addressed the country. It was an act of cowardice, and it was evil. And I will not allow the people of this country to be intimidated by evil cowards. Let there be no room for doubt. We will find the people who did this. Two years before, in 1993, Islamic terrorists had carried out a bombing at the World Trade Center in New York. And at first, investigators wondered whether Oklahoma City might be connected to Islamic extremism, too. We don't know who's behind this. Some Islamic groups that are in that city have caused concerns and uh, have been watched. But more than anything, the date of the attack suggested otherwise. The date of April 19th, the date uh, of the burning of the compound in Waco, had already become an important date on the kind of calendar of the radical right. April 19th, as it happens, was also the first day where shots were fired in Concord, the beginning of the American Revolution. In our last episode, we talked about the standoff at the compound of the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord in Arkansas. The day that siege started, April 19th, 1985, exactly 10 years before the attack in Oklahoma City. On the day of the Oklahoma City bombing, one of those CSA members, a man named Richard Wayne Snell, was scheduled to be executed after murdering a black police officer and a man he mistakenly believed to be Jewish. But before that, back in 1983, Snell, inspired by the Turner Diaries, had plotted to attack a federal building with a rocket launcher. His target? The Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. According to prison logs, on the day of the Oklahoma City bombing, Snell watched the news coverage in his cell and chuckled to himself. In the execution chamber later that day, Snell's final words were a warning to the government. Look over your shoulder, he said. Justice is coming. The date had some importance to people on the extreme right and really nobody else. But of course, once the bombing in Oklahoma City occurred, it became a date which no one will ever forget. I was undercover in the white supremacist movement when Ruby Ridge and Waco occurred. And it was a fascinating place to be just as a human being. This is Mike German. Back in the early 90s, German was an undercover FBI agent investigating neo-Nazi groups in the Los Angeles area. The cases that I was involved in were all taken down in July of 1993 when I was transferred to Providence, Rhode Island. So I was in Providence when the Oklahoma City bombing happened. And of course, the television was on in the conference room and everybody gathered to see what everybody was seeing. Capitol Hill sources say FBI officials have been nervous for weeks over fears of increased terrorist activities. There were talking head commenters and even former FBI officials who were immediately blaming it on Arabs and Muslims. And a possible connection between today's explosion and Islamic terrorist groups is being explored. Talking about the sophistication of this attack is evidence that these are foreign groups. You know, I was kind of standing in the back of the room and I said, they're wrong, this is white guys. The room went silent and everyone turned around and looked at me and said, what the hell are you talking about? 
And I said, it's obvious. It targeted a bureaucratic office building that targeted a building that housed the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, the group that started the Ruby Ridge investigation and started the confrontation with the Branch Davidians in Waco. And also the date on April 19th, it was pretty clear to me what it was. Despite the indicators, which group carried out the attack wasn't immediately clear to the Justice Department. At the time, no terror attack of that magnitude had been carried out by white perpetrators. And the FBI was, and still is, largely a white man's club, with little imagination for what the white power movement was actually capable of. So while the Justice Department was running down international terrorism leads, its investigators had no idea that the man who had carried out the bombing was already in custody, caught just hours afterward. At 10.20 on the morning of the bombing, an Oklahoma state trooper named Charlie Hanger was on patrol on Highway 35 when he spotted a sedan speeding without a license plate. So I slowed down, got back behind him, changed lanes, initiated my emergency lights, and began what I thought was just another routine traffic stop. Hanger approaches the driver, a young white man with a crew cut, and asks him to step out of the car and hand over his license. When he goes to reach for his billfold in his right rear pocket, it tightens that jacket up, and I saw a bulge under his left arm that appeared to be a gun. And I instruct him, I said, I want you to take both hands, I want you to slowly unzip that jacket and slowly pull it back so I can look under it. Hanger watched as the man unzipped his jacket. But as he started to open it, the man turned and looked at him. And he looks me in the eye and he says, I have a weapon. I reached up and I grabbed the outside of his jacket where the bulge was, spun him around, telling him, get your hands up. I drew my weapon and stuck it to the back of his head and instructed him to walk to the trunk of his car. We're about halfway to the trunk of his car and he made a statement that at the time, I thought he was trying to intimidate me. He said, my weapon is loaded. I nudged him with the barrel of my pistol at the back of his head, and I said, so is mine. Hanger took the man to a local jail to be booked. And as he was processed, the man sat there, watching coverage of the bombing on the news. At the center of it all, of course, is the bombed-out shell of the federal office building. And in its shadow, the exhausted. Down at the scene, at the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, FBI agents had found something crucial. The axle of the Ryder truck that had been used to carry the bomb. It had been launched more than 200 yards from the scene and was found embedded in the hood of a car. On it was a VIN number. They traced the truck to a rental agency. It had been rented by a man using a fake name, but the rental agent gave an FBI sketch artist a description. After passing the sketch around at local motels, a clerk said she recognized him. It was one of her guests, a man named Timothy McVeigh. The FBI ran a criminal background check and were stunned to find that McVeigh had already been arrested days before and was waiting in a small-town holding cell just outside of Oklahoma City. And just like that, the manhunt was over. (laughs) 
As the FBI escorted McVeigh to a waiting van to transport him to a federal jail, the world got its first look at the face of the man who had carried out the unspeakable. But the questions were only beginning. How could he have done it? And what was the path that brought him here? For the last 25 years, America has told itself a story that the Oklahoma City bombing was the work of a lone wolf, that Timothy McVeigh committed the deadliest bombing on U.S. soil basically by himself with the help of another individual, Terry Nichols, that McVeigh wasn't part of a terror movement. But that simple story isn't really true. The answer to the question of how McVeigh could carry out the bombing can only be understood when you see the action for what it is part of the broader movement we discussed in the last episode, the re-emergence of white power groups in the 1980s. And to understand how McVeigh fit into that movement, you need to start at the beginning of his story. It didn't cross anybody's mind that it would be a fellow American that had conducted such a heinous act. A war hero, he'd gotten a bronze star in the first Gulf War from white-bred suburbia. Everyone was shocked, I think, in the country. This is Lou Michelle, author of the book American Terrorist, which he wrote with a fellow journalist named Dan Herbeck. At the time McVeigh was arrested, Michelle was a reporter at the Buffalo News in Niagara County, New York, where McVeigh had grown up. And he got assigned to report on the origins of America's most notorious man. There was nothing in his personality, at least overtly, that said this kid is going to grow up and become a terrorist. Tim McVeigh was from a very typical American family. He was the middle child. He had an older sister and then a younger sister. They lived in Pendleton in Niagara County in a suburban area. His parents got divorced. And he was something of a loner from early on. When his parents split, McVeigh started to spend more time with his grandfather, Ed. Ed taught him how to shoot a 22 rifle at a young age. Ed was not a radical by any means. Those were just things you did. After the divorce, McVeigh moved in with his father. He struggled to make friends in middle school. He was bullied as a young boy and an adolescent. We all know how kind and considerate young adolescents can be. A couple of kids came into the bathroom and one of them picked him up and put him in a toilet and started flushing it and they called that a swirly. By high school, McVeigh was something of a loner and his fascination with guns grew. He loved guns from the start. He started going to gun shows, and the gun culture took hold of him. At these gun shows, McVeigh was exposed to the growing world of the far right, to the militia movement, to the white power movement. He ordered a copy of the Turner Diaries and was fascinated by it. After graduating high school and a brief stint in college, McVeigh decided to put his love of guns to work. He went into the army because he just he couldn't find his place in middle-class life. McVeigh's first few years of the Army were the happiest times of his life. An excellent marksman, he set records as a gunner on the Bradley fighting vehicle. But he didn't leave his growing far-right views behind. 
he joined the army with a copy of the Turner Diaries and he was showing it in the barracks and somebody who was familiar with it said you can't have that in here it's about blowing up buildings killing government people In 1991, McVeigh was deployed as part of Operation Desert Storm, invading Kuwait to fight Saddam Hussein's Iraqi army. His service in the Gulf War, so far as we know, was exemplary. He was awarded a Bronze Star. He had killed a couple of Iraqi soldiers from a mile away in his Bradley fighting vehicle. He was top gun. But like a lot of men who go to war, McVeigh was troubled by what he saw. He sees all of the Iraqi soldiers, their bodies rotting on the side of the road. He sees Iraqi civilians going hungry. He sees the devastation of war. Meanwhile, percolating in the back of his mind is the Turner Diaries, the overreach of the government. And he's thinking, boy, I'm a part of this I'm not sure that I feel really good about what I've done. The combat of Operation Desert Storm lasted just 100 hours and was considered a grand victory for the U.S. But McVeigh was changed by it. Just days after returning from the Middle East, he had the chance to fulfill a dream and join the legendary Green Berets. But exhausted from battle, he ended up withdrawing after just two days. The disenchantment caught up with him, and he decided to leave the military. It's unfortunate that he did, because we might not be having this conversation right now. He could have somehow come to terms with his place in life. McVeigh re-entered civilian society at the precise moment that people like him, white males with only a high school education, were seeing their economic prospects dim. The Buffalo area where he lived was one of the hardest hit. The good-paying blue-collar jobs that had once been ample in the Great Lakes region had been decimated by globalization and government trade agreements that sent those jobs overseas. And McVeigh's military service didn't really seem to count for anything. It was a recipe for anger and resentment. Soon, he was working as a security guard, the same job he'd had before he ever joined the military and fell back into his old habits. He's going to gun shows more frequently now and getting in with the fringe people. At these gun shows, they have Nazi memorabilia and anti-government literature. He's picking up these VCR tapes, talking about the New World Order. There won't be an American democracy anymore. All of these things are filling his head. And then, in 1992, the standoff at Ruby Ridge. Tragic news of another death in the mountaintop cabin. Weaver's 13-year-old son and a U.S. Marshal are dead. The government killed Randy Weaver's wife, Vicki, and his son, Sammy. That's weighing heavy on McVeigh. He looked at the FBI, the ATF, as being militarized against the civilian population. And he's getting genuinely concerned. McVeigh becomes a survivalist. He turns the home where he lives with his father into a fortified bunker. He starts buying guns and ammunition en masse and visiting militia groups across the country. 
As he ranges further into the world of the far right, he even signs up for membership in the Ku Klux Klan. At that point, the white power movement had adopted a new approach it called leaderless resistance. This was simple cell-type terrorism, the kind we've seen in more recent years overseas with groups like ISIS. Rather than having public-facing leaders of the movement planning violence and making themselves the target of law enforcement, leaderless resistance depends on the individual violent actions of people sympathetic to the movement's beliefs. And in the white power movement, the Turner Diaries had become the roadmap that any individual sympathetic to the cause could follow. By 1993, Tim McVeigh was becoming one such individual. He was driving back and forth across the country, visiting gun shows, when a siege began at the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. He actually goes down to Waco at one point, and he was selling bumper stickers that he picked up at gun shows. That's when he gave an interview to a student reporter, Michelle Rausch, from the top of the episode. Somebody told me a lot of people would be scared to put something on the camera like this. He's hanging out down there, and he actually encountered a group of ATF agents. There were several of them around a campfire. And they said, who are you? And he didn't challenge them. They told him, get out of here. But he was thinking to himself, boy, I could have killed them. If I wanted to, I could have taken them out. While the Waco siege continued, McVeigh drove up to Michigan to visit his friend from the Army, Terry Nichols. Nichols had read the Turner Diaries, too, and shared McVeigh's concerns about government overreach. McVeigh wanted to bring Nichols back to Waco. And he's outside Nichols' farmhouse in very rural Decker, Michigan. McVeigh's under his car doing some mechanical stuff to prepare for this long drive down to Waco. And they say, get in here. They've set the compound on fire. Then he runs into the parlor of this old farmhouse. And on the TV, the Davidian compound is on fire. And that's proving to be the case here as this fire just completely roars through this building. McVeigh is standing there in the living room. There's tears in his eyes. That was the defining moment, watching Waco burn. He realizes he has to do more, and he plots with Terry Nichols to take some type of an action against the federal government. In the Turner Diaries, the resistance group The Order blows up a federal building. And inspired by the book, that's what McVeigh decides to do. With plans downloaded from the internet, McVeigh and Nichols gather materials to make a bomb. They start to stockpile ammonium nitrate fertilizer, a total of about 4,000 pounds, in storage facilities. They steal blasting caps from a rock quarry and buy racing fuel from a racetrack. In the Arizona desert, McVeigh tests a jug-sized version of the bomb, and it works. They start conducting reconnaissance on different government buildings, and he wanted to have at least three or four federal law enforcement agencies. And in Oklahoma City, he sees a building that fits his description. The address of it has the Secret Service, an ATF office. That's how he settled on the Murrah building. 
McVeigh's anger at this time is clear. He wrote a letter on his computer titled ATF Read, in which he raged, ATF, you tyrannical motherfuckers will swing in the wind one day for your treasonous actions against the Constitution. Die, you spineless, cowardice bastards. He would make one more statement against the government with the date he chose to carry out the bombing. April 19th, 1995. Two years after the burning of Waco. On the morning of April 19th, McVeigh woke up in the yellow rider truck he had rented. The truck was sitting low on its wheels, weighed down by the now 7,000-pound bomb in its cargo hold. McVeigh ate a military MRE, meal ready to eat, of spaghetti. Then he put on a t-shirt he had made for the occasion. On the back, there was a quote from Thomas Jefferson. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. On the front, a picture of Abraham Lincoln with the words that John Wilkes Booth had screamed after shooting the 16th president in Ford's theater in 1865. Sick semper tyrannis, thus ever to tyrants. McVeigh drives into Oklahoma City, arriving in front of the Murrah building just before 9 a.m., a time he selected because he knew that most people would be in the office by then. Then he lit the fuse of the bomb and walked away toward the getaway car. By the end of the day, McVeigh would be sitting in a police station, arrested for carrying a gun without a license after getting pulled over by state trooper Charlie Hanger. While McVeigh is being booked, there's a TV on. He sees the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. And counted its dead and seen up close why they call it terror. And he's watching this horror that he is the cause of unfold in front of him. And he said, damn, I didn't take it down. Really cold-blooded. In the getaway car, Hanger found the materials McVeigh had wanted authorities to find, including a piece of paper with a quote from the Turner Diaries. The quote read, The real value of all our attacks today lies in the psychological impact, not in the immediate casualties. More important, though, is what we taught the politicians and the bureaucrats. They learned this afternoon that not one of them is beyond our reach. In the run-up to McVeigh's trial, the government spent an estimated $82 million on a 32-month investigation the FBI called OK Bomb. But it never really tackled the questions of the larger anti-government white power movement that had radicalized McVeigh. Mike German, who was working at the FBI at the time, found the whole thing puzzling. It was interesting to me how you had a perpetrator who had portions of the Turner Diaries with him at the time of the explosion following this model that this white supremacist had laid out and preached throughout the United States for some time. But the Bureau very quickly started referring to Tim McVeigh as a lone wolf. This, of course, was exactly what the white power movement wanted, to advocate radical violence while distancing itself from it. When I was undercover in the early 90s with neo-Nazi groups, one of the written materials that was being passed around was something called the Lone Wolf Manual. And it explained to militants how 
it was very important before you went and committed a violent act to make a clean break with any above ground groups that you had been associated with in case anybody got arrested or captured. And it was frustrating because it's not like this is a secret that was only passed to me because I was undercover. They're written down. You can read them. McVeigh would ultimately be tried and convicted for the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building. The government sought the death penalty, and the jury agreed. As McVeigh waited for his execution in a prison in Terre Haute, Indiana, the echoes of the bombing continued, and the anti-government movement soldiered on. Feeling the heat from the bombing, white supremacist groups rebranded themselves as militias, and hundreds of new militia groups sprung up all over the country. But this time, the government rose to meet them. America will never surrender to terror. America will never tolerate terrorism. President Clinton hired hundreds of new FBI agents to investigate domestic terror. Plots were thwarted, militants went to jail. But in some ways, McVeigh accomplished his mission. Buffeted by criticism from Ruby Ridge and Waco and horrified at the bloodshed at Oklahoma City, the government and the Justice Department were more cautious. They call themselves the, quote, freemen. They don't obey laws, but tonight they're surrounded by officers of the law. A year after the bombing, a militia group in Montana known as the Freemen got in a standoff with federal agents. Everything about the event seemed different. Gone were the armored personnel carriers and tanks that had dominated the pictures of Ruby Ridge and Waco. FBI agents walked around the scene in khakis, not tactical gear. Former FBI Director William Sessions, who watched standoffs give way to deadly shootouts at Ruby Ridge and at Waco, says here, patience is the best policy. They can probably afford to simply sit and to wait. The 81-day standoff ended peacefully. From his cell, McVeigh celebrated. I'm convinced the Freeman would be dead if not for the Murrah Federal Building, he told his biographers. Lou Michelle went on to secure a series of interviews with McVeigh and with his co-author, Dan Herbeck, wrote their book on Oklahoma City. The book was used, swaths of it, in the government statements, fighting the delay of the execution. To have my journalism used to secure somebody's death, it really put me in a funky situation. But those were McVeigh's words, and they used McVeigh's words against him. On June 11, 2001, McVeigh was strapped to the gurney in the federal execution chamber, staring up at a camera trained right on his face. The feed was being broadcast to an arena in Oklahoma City. Victims and their families gathered there to watch as McVeigh was executed. Exactly three months later, the U.S. government's entire posture and the entire debate around terrorism would change forever. This just in, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. That's on the next episode of Long Shadow, Rise of the American Far Right. To learn more about Tim McVeigh, please check out American Terrorist by Lou Michelle and Dan Herbeck. Long Shadow, Rise of the American Far Right is a co-production of Long Lead and Campside Media. The show is produced by Ryan Swiker. 
Callie Hitchcock is our associate producer. Executive producers are John Patrick Pullen and Josh Dean, who also served as Long Shadow story editors. Audience development by Heather Muse. Will DeGravio is our research assistant. Fact-checking by Rebecca Holland. Mark McAdam did the mix. Sound design by Ryan Swikert. Music by Blue Dot Sessions and APM. Cover art by Long Leads creative director, Sarah Rogers. A special thanks to Jennifer Bassett, who consulted on the podcast. Learn more about Long Lead and subscribe to our newsletter at longlead.com. If you're enjoying the show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. I'm Garrett Graff, and thanks for listening.